Hi, and welcome to Decoding AQ, helping you to learn the tools, mindsets, and actions to thrive in an ever-changing world. Hi, and welcome to the next edition of Decoding AQ. I'm very honored today to be joined by Gary Bowles. He's the chair and for the future of work at Singularity University. In fact, that's where we first met. He's also the co-founder of ePARACHUTE and speaker and writer. So welcome. Thank you. Looking forward to the conversation. I'm going to hit straight between the eyes with the first question for you, Gary, before we go into any background, any of your story. And it's the question, um, whenever I ask someone to come on and be interviewed, is what's the one question you want me to ask? And normally, you know, I get to it by the end, but I thought I'm going to start with it, Gary. So it's what's the single most <laughs> important issue we need to focus on when it comes to the future of work? Absolutely. So, so the most basic that I come back to again and again, the anchor that I use is how will we ensure that no human is left behind? That's, that's kind of it is you know, the, the robots and software are going to be fine. Uh, our technology seems to just toodle along just uh, quite well on its own. Uh, it's the, the human part and especially our skills and our capacity for being able to solve the problems of today and tomorrow. And uh, so I think if there's one issue I want to encourage everyone to keep coming back to, it's work has changed constantly throughout human history. And it's going to continue to change constantly as we've found quite recently. Uh, but I think one of the greatest challenges and opportunities for us is to figure out how do we ensure that absolutely every human on the planet has access to meaningful, well-paid, stable work. And, uh, and, and lots more beyond that. But, uh, but those are the major issues I think that we need to address. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's our MTV, MTP, you know, our massive transformational purposes to ensure no one's left behind, you know. And I think the reality of, you know, identifying the issue and asking the right question is one thing. The second part is then how. And how do we start to begin to figure that out? And do we even need to figure it out? Or do we just need the next step? What's your view in, okay, if that's the most important issue, what's next after we've identified that? So I, what I urge people to do is to um, sort of go through their own process of thinking about, well, what does this mean to them? And what is their role? Um, now for many of us, uh, what we care most about is our role as individuals and, uh, and how do we as individuals uh, continue to thrive. And I, that's not only appropriate, but that's sort of like the table stakes, the baseline deliverable. Uh, so I, I urge people to go through their own process of determining some kind of self-inventory. How do you know what your own skills are? How do you know what you love to do? What's your own North Star or Southern Cross? that guides you in the work that you do. And if, if that signpost or that guide is simply to feed your family and put a roof over their heads, <laughs> um, that's awesome. But those, that's what I call the old rules of work. And uh, in what I call the next rules of work, really, I think it's a different calculus. It's continually growing and changing as an individual. It's finding purpose in the work that you do, helping others to find purpose in their work, finding purpose in organizations, and as much as possible, trying to figure out what your, you know, how you can deliver on that, 
way that you can have uh, your own meaningful, well-paid work. So that's sort of like table stakes, like you as an individual. And then, you know, there's often your organization, you know, the organization you're working in, and how can that become more of this platform for how we can have more inclusive work um, and and ensure that everybody is is solving problems that are that matter. And then sort of the next step beyond that is your community, you, your family, the people around you, you know, and then and then finally, it's your country. So, so these are what I call the four domains of the next next rules of work, individuals, organizations, communities, and countries, and each of us has to determine what's our role, like, what are we, are we, are we here to just do better on our own, and that's great, or are we about trying to enable more inclusive organizations, uh, communities in which everyone can thrive, and countries that can have as inclusive economies as possible. I love the concept in this idea, and this is your next book, right, in terms of the next rules of work. Uh, what's your definition of work, and do you think that will change? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and I'm, I'm glad you're doing this sort of step back thing, because I think what ends up happening is we've gone through these phases where we just sort of accept what the rules of work are, right? And so many of the rules, and I'm, 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 I live in Silicon Valley, we don't like rules, we break rules. Yep. <laughs> uh, but the truth is there are rules and, and, uh, and a lot of them are unwritten, but, and a lot of them come from the industrial era, uh, showing up to the same place all the time and producing something over and over again. and and having horrible commutes and having, you know, these were all things that we had to live with before the pandemic. And then along came a virus and we started to question some of them. Well, if you can't go into an office, then what do you do? Now, some people, a lot of people didn't have that luxury. What they did was play space. They worked in a hotel, they worked in a restaurant, they, yeah. so, so, or in a hospital. And, and so it, not everybody has that luxury, but where people's work allowed it, we started to question some of those rules. Then we had to make up new ones. Yeah. Uh, and imagine, remember all the time with the first Zoom calls where everybody's figuring out and, you know, what are you working on? And what am I working on? And do I have the right, can you hear me? You know, what's this? Yeah. How does this work? Uh, we've, we've adapted pretty quickly. But the truth is we were following these old rules for quite some time. And so the reason I focus on the next rules is I really do believe we as humans, we are reinventing work as we yeah. as we go along. I mean, right now, so much of the discussion is, are we going back in the office? Are we going to do this hybrid work, which is not my favorite phrase? How, how are we going to do all that? We're making up the rules as we go along. And I believe that's the new abnormal, that that is, we're going to keep on doing that for quite some time. I, I read a quote, I think it was Dan Sullivan today, and uh, it was something like, if you can't win at the game, change the rules. And, um, you know, the reality for many organizations, whether it's at an individual level, organization, community, family, country, some of the playbooks aren't working anymore. And it takes a number of factors to exist. You know, there's going to be sense of loss uh, when you liked doing certain things, but that might be taken away from you or certain things you did provided value that now no longer is providing value. So that transition that people go through uh, is, I guess, a lot like grief, you know, from denial to acceptance, you know, all of different phases that people will yeah. go through. I wonder what um, your experience, and I, I want to switch the conversation a bit back to your childhood and understand what it was like growing up 
in your family. And uh, for those who might not know, your father is a, a pretty famous guy, right? Uh, certainly in this uh, whole career field. And I'm just fascinated as to the moments that might have shaped your thinking and your concepts of career. And uh, just give us a few stories and then perhaps we'll get into a little bit more of the meat of how that might have shaped who you've become. Yeah, absolutely. So now I appreciate your asking. So um, I talk about, I, I've got a couple of stories in the book. Um, uh, so, but I'll tell you one that's not in the book. <laughs> I like and, those, uh, I like those. And so, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I, any perception that I might offer that I've ever had a linear career path, uh, hopefully I can destroy immediately because uh, when, when I, barely graduated from high school, I had zero interest in college. And uh, which was slightly ironic given not only that my, my father went to MIT and Harvard and my, my mother went, went also to, to Harvard, uh, but uh, that my father, as you say, well, he was a recovering minister. He was a minister who lost his job, went to go write a pamphlet to help other ministers who had lost their job and, uh, and became, eventually became the world's career counselor. Uh, with what colors your parachute and so and, and Gary uh, is that 10 million copies sold uh, it's about 10 million copies in print it's in 17 languages around the world uh, yeah. my, my father passed away four years ago mm -hmm. uh, but he left behind an amazing legacy and we've brought a lot of his work online we've built some online tools I just recorded a, parachute. Uh, a video yeah. course yeah free parachute uh, on his method which he called the flower exercises to help do that self-inventory that I was talking about but uh, when I was 19, I, you know, I, I had no interest in college, so I sort of fell into the family business. And uh, the family businesses at the time was, and my parents had split up, but um, my, my father um, was, was uh, traveling around the country and around the world doing workshops. And so I became trained in his methods. So imagine you're 19 years old and you're trained to do career counseling with people in their 40s and 50s. Now, first off, there's a little cognitive dissonance here, like what, 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 what can you possibly tell me? But it turns out that that decision-making process for each of us about how we identify that North Star or that Southern Cross, it's a process. It's a set of steps. It's a set of techniques and exercises, and anybody can do them. We've done them as, with uh, people as young as fifth grade and as old as in their 90s. And, and the basic premise is that there's a whole bunch of information to learn about you and your preferences and what makes you unique because you are absolutely unique. Uh, but here I was a 19 year old teaching people in their forties and fifties, you know, how to go through this process. And they're complaining about their dead end jobs and how they wish they'd changed long ago. Well, there's no, there's only one takeaway you could have. And that's that you should do what you love. That is you should, that North star that Southern cross is, and you should continually readjust your understanding of what that is because mm -hmm. it can change. But that that guidance, the, the driving force to either use particular skills that you love using or solve particular problems that you love to solve or working with specific populations that you care the most about, whatever that is, that that becomes this driving line for you in your career choice. And so how could I not get the takeaway you know, that I should do what I yeah. love. And what I loved was uh, technology. I've got, you know, all these, all, you remember this, this is Blackberry. Yeah. Uh, I, I fell into Silicon Valley in the early eighties. Um, and I thought 
oh, it's all done. You know, Microsoft's a big company. Apple's a big company. You know, what, what could you possibly do with a computer that hasn't already been done in the 1980s? But, oh, you know what? I'll just go and I'll, I'll work on a quality a software test team or something like that. And I'll just learn about this stuff. And uh, it turns out you, we haven't figured out everything about computers. As a matter of fact, there were a lot of things left to do with computers. And, uh, and so that's how I found what I loved, which is just about everything I've done has had some underpinning with high tech since then. And in terms of that realization of when we observe something thinking, oh, all has already been done, what can be left? The same, I, I, as you were talking there, was thinking about reflection points on oneself. The difference of reflecting when you're at 19 to when you're at 40 to when you're at 90 about thinking what's bigger, my past or my future. And this concept of work and career and for many who are entering many, uh, you know, phases of work that they might not have envisaged when they were 19. What kind of um, processes have you observed or you go through or maybe even part of e-parachute help people go through those various moments of reevaluation and maybe reimagination of what could be possible for them? Yeah. No, I think, and I think reimagination is a great, great way to think about it, right? Because um, you, you, you actually do want to spark someone's creativity in helping them to think of the range of different options. So, and I'll, I'll give you two different ways to approach it because there's lots of different people and lots of different kinds of ways to think about these things. So the, the underpinning is, and my father was very good about this, is that there's sort of three major decision areas when you think about careers. The first is what, that's what's unique about you, those skills and other attributes I was talking about. There's a where, like where could you use those skills? What are the different scenarios for where you could solve different problems? Um, if you're good at analyzing, you could be analyzing people, analyzing software, analyzing numbers. You, you know, there's lots of different ways to be able to use those skills. And then finally, there's the how, the mechanics of either finding or if you become an entrepreneur, creating that, that kind of work. And so what, where, how? And, and so I, I urge people a lot, if you already know what you want to do, oh, that's great. You can jump to the how part. But in a lot of cases, we don't. And so you have to question those assumptions about yourself. And so those exercises you can go through and use parachute and the flower, or you use what we have on a parachute, uh, it's called jump. If you use strengths finders, I mean, there's tons of different ways to be able to develop that self-inventory. And then to build ideas for different scenarios, and to really dream, think of different ways that you could be able to use all those different skills and, and capacities. Now, the, the, the challenge for young people is that they don't have a lot of experience, so there isn't a lot of fodder for understanding what's unique about them. And so you have to use proxies. You've got to help them to understand what they did in school. Or what, you know, and, and unfortunately, I mean, you know, most teenagers, they either think that they know everything or they know nothing and uh, sometimes on the same subjects. And, uh, and so the ones that think they know nothing, you have to help them to be able to develop uh, an understanding of their own skills and develop self-esteem. And the ones who think they know everything, well, you've got to help them to be able to explore because it turns out once you do that, you find out, well, I, maybe I don't know everything I thought I did. And older people, it's sort of flipped. You have all this experience, but you might think then, oh, you can't teach, teach an old dog new tricks. You can't. I mean, it, it's harder to make those changes. And so instead, we say, 
it's you have all of this uh, experience you can look back on and but you now you need to have more permission to think of something completely different to take all this these different elements that you have and to be able to reassemble them into something very new and so those are those are just two different ways to think about it when you're young you want to be thinking about exploring you want to be thinking about testing and trying out and when you're older you want to be able to think about different ways to reassemble uh, we, I think of skills as being recombinant, like genes. You know, you can reassemble all those in different ways and solve new problems in ways you might not even have envisioned. I I love that uh, sort of visual analogy of reassemble, and it reminds me a little bit of Keith Ferrazzi's uh, talk about uh, Lego blocks. You know, and yeah. thinking about tasks or skills as Lego blocks, and deciding about which ones you want to build and you know, I have uh, five grandchildren uh, that my wife um, has and the Lego block, you know, bucket is made up of the same pieces, but every time they play with it, they make different things, right? So this permission yeah. to reassemble, to recreate and imagine, and perhaps as we get older, our imagination gets maybe limited um, and maybe some of the work that we can do in this future of work is give permission again for people to imagine, to dream, to think that something else is possible. Because as a child, you're naive. You just think, oh, well, anything's possible. But slowly over time, you might get reduced to that if you haven't been in the right environments, if you haven't been with the right people, and maybe your imagination might be challenged. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's why I use the word permission. Mm. Um, there's, there's, there's circles of permission. The first circle is giving yourself permission. You have to give yourself permission to dream. And if you keep on thinking that you, there's all these shoulds and woulds and can'ts and you've got to make the rent and you've got to, you know, then, then you're not going to give yourself permission. And then there's a, the next concentric circle is if you've got a spouse or a close family and friends, and then the next concentric circle is society. Some people think they need society to give them approval. Well, you're never going to get society's approval. So let's just forget that circle even exists. You've got to give yourself permission and then you've got to be able to, to collaborate and co-create with the people around you to help them to support you to go through that transition. Now, the one thing when people are older that we find that I, I just urge over and over again from a mindset standpoint, um, and in the next rules of work, I say you know, that the sort of the three legs of the stool are mindset, skill set, and tool set. So, but the mindset, especially when you're older, is, is unfortunately a lot of the framing that older people often use is they look back and they see so much behind them and they look ahead and they see less. And that is to my mind, the wrong mindset or rather that's a mindset that won't be helpful to you. Instead, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Instead, uh, you know, if you want a good Bible for this, read Carol Dweck's book, uh, Mindset. And she talks about a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And a fixed mindset looks back and says, no, I have to keep on doing all I've done in the past. And a growth mindset says that no matter what age, I can continue to grow and develop and change. I can do new things. There are tremendous possibilities that are open for me. And lo and behold, if you have that mindset, then those possibilities appear. I've got a question around the, so these three legs of the stool. Of mindset, of skill set, and tool set. That 
the concept of acquiring those things, putting them in your backpack, right? So I put my mindset in there, I put my skill set, I put my toolkit in, and off I go. So I would have gone to somewhere to acquire them, a education, a, a place of education, be that college, university, or maybe uh, pr- apprentices, those kind of things, and say, okay, I've got these things, now I'll go and sweat them, now I'll go and utilize them. And in a linear world, that might have led us to generate value in work for a long period of time. Whereas now, because of the pace of how quickly things are changing, how much we have to learn on the job, as it were, sort of lifetime learning. And we, there's a lot of talk in organizations about continual learning, lifetime learning, all of these sorts of things where it's still working on those three stool legs. You know, you, we've got to continually develop our mindset, continually develop our skill set and our toolkit. The, what kind of organization environments do that really well? And how do you see maybe the new, these next rules of work providing that environment where that uh, continual learning can thrive if, Gary, you believe continual learning is an essential part of the future of work? So absolutely. So a couple of things. So, so first off, back to the old rules of work. Um, my, my father, after he wrote Parachute, he wrote a book called The Three Boxes of Life. And, uh, and it, you know, it's a concept that had been around for a while, but he put great language around it. And he basically said, look, there's three boxes that you go through. You got a big chunk of education and then you're thrown with zero preparation into a big chunk of work. And then you're thrown with zero preparation into a big chunk of leisure in what I call the period formerly known as retirement. And that was it, education, work and leisure. And what I talk about now is a portfolio of work and a portfolio of learning and a portfolio of leisure. That is a young person comes out of high school, vocational school, trade school nowadays. And sure, they might get a day job, but then they take a gap month with their friends. And then they start working in another job, but they're driving for Uber at night and they're working on a startup with their friends. And it's a constantly changing landscape of work and learning and leisure. And I call that a portfolio of work because in the same way that your investment counselor would advise you to have a range of investments from very safe, that's your day job, to very high risk, a little bit of high risk, that's your startup. Uh, young people nowadays are trying to factor for what you've already called it, an, a world of exponential change. The world is changing so rapidly. We have, we have a perfect example when, it, when this virus came along about how rapidly the world can change, when suddenly half the world was having the same experience of having to work in place. And, and so that's likely to continue. We're likely to keep on seeing these these shocks to the system, these whacks to the side of the head, what I call the great reset uh, from an article mm-hmm. that I wrote a year ago. And so what I, what I urge people, a couple of things. So first off, if you don't think of yourself as having a growth mindset, it's just going to be harder. It isn't that you can't find a job that's very static and stable and you can't get a safe degree and now, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Maybe it used to be law or medicine. It's not those things anymore. Uh, but uh, maybe it's plastic surgery. I don't know. But, 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 but you, you, you might still find, you know, quote, unquote, safe jobs and, uh, and, and safe degrees to have and that sort of thing. But it's unlikely. It's likely that the world's just going to keep changing and we're going to need to continually learn how to adapt. Now, 
the whole idea of lifelong learning, which sounds a little bit scary or, or actually un, it could be t- distasteful to people who hated school originally. Yeah. As I said, what's happening as you develop a portfolio of work, if you watch young people, what they're doing is they're actually learning far more frequently what I call just in time and just in context. So, so rather than, I use the um, uh, example of a young man who uh, he um, went to work at a, at a family's business and he saw that there was nobody doing the IT work. So he just sort of stepped into it and he didn't tell the office manager, I'm going back for a four-year degree uh, and uh, IT degree and then, come, and then I'm coming back and you can hire me. No, he just started looking online and looking on his digital distraction device for how to solve different problems and uh, installed new technology in the office and became the IT guy overnight. And so that's what young people are doing nowadays is learning just in time and just in context. They're learning what they need to solve the problem directly in front of them. And they're learning as they do it with real world problems. And so that's how work is gonna shift more and more to problem centric and project centric. And our learning will be more and more just in time and just in context. Now, that doesn't mean that I want my brain surgeon to have watched a YouTube video and walk into the operating theater. But a tremendous amount of learning is going to be in the context of trying to solve the problem that's directly in front of us. I I think that's really insightful in the reality even of my life. You know, uh, when we just had a conversation before we went live. I was telling you about my father and I building the uh, building in our garden for a home office. And, you know, some of these things, oh, let's have a check out YouTube. Oh, that's how we do the tiling for the roof, you know, and you you learn and then you learn by doing some of these things. And yeah. that situation, whether you're going to a center of knowledge, be that YouTube or a university, to acquire some information that you will then utilize at some point. And you're talking about shrinking the time between the learning and the doing uh, from a college to three years later. Now I've got to use that thing and try and remember it to write there. How will that work when it's something that we haven't done before? When it's a role or a task or an element, what do we need to shift to in our thinking? And maybe there's an indication into the legacy of your father and things where, you know, methodologies and principles are, you know, grounded and can maybe outlast certain in the moment executional skills of those things. So I'm just curious as to this roller coaster that we're on that's speeding up. How do we uh, provide value for things that we don't know what the value is and we don't know what the problem is or even how to solve it as we go forwards? What's the kind of world like that, Karen? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you a couple of uh, just quick anchors for it. Um, so the first is across the board mindset, <laughs> uh, the mindset of a problem solver. Um, if you are approaching a novel problem, you've never seen this before. Uh, the workman is not available to help you install the, the building. So now you and your father have to figure it out. If you didn't think of yourselves as able to solve that problem, then you're either going to be standing around just looking at each other or you're going to immediately go on your digital distraction device and find somebody to solve it for you because you, you can't figure it out, right? So first off, if you think of yourself, you have the mindset of a problem solver, then 
you're going to deconstruct the problem and you're going to figure out you're, you're basically you're going to do trial and error right we don't call mm -hmm. we don't call it trial and success we call it trial and error you're going to make mistakes you're going to and you but you're going to figure it out right um second is you're often going to do it collaboratively that is you have certain superpowers at the intersection of what you love and what you're good at doing. Other people have superpowers and you might be the one to be able to hang the door, but your father might be the one to be able to do the painting. And so, so everybody's got different skill sets that are already optimized and figuring out how to align those skill sets is going to be one of the deliverables for tomorrow. Now, now there, there are, broad different categories of skills. And I think that's important to call out is, and this is research going back to the 1950s, an old friend of my father's by the name of Sid Fine. But, but basically there are skills that are anchored in a field or industry. And we often call those no skills or knowledges. And there are skills that are usable in a range of different situations. And those are flexible skills or transferable skills. Now, unfortunately we call these hard skills and soft skills. But the truth is these flex skills, these skills that are usable in a range of different situations, everything from problem solving to analyzing, to communicating, to collaborating, they all end in ING. Those are skills that are quite trainable. And those are on the top list of everybody's 21st century skills. They're skills that are not often explicitly taught in our schools. Our schools are often optimized for those no skills, getting a bunch of knowledges into your head. Well, I, that world's evaporating and you're gonna get more and more of your no skills from these. And you're gonna get more and more of those flex skills from learning just in time and just in context. And you mentioned, you know, it's called trial and error for a reason, not trial and success. How do organizations really, truly and properly embrace trial and error? Because there's so much pressure to perform. There's pressure on results. Uh, there's pressures yeah. on just survival, let alone thriving. And therefore, I've got no time or space for error. I need results. How do they create an environment in which it does foster trial and error to allow for those opportunities that weren't seen before? those breakthroughs that were lurking in a dark corner. Yeah. Um, what are the sort of, you know, environments or processes or policies or things that an organization can put in place where trial and error becomes a happy, uh, you know, brother and sister to have in the room, not one that you try and lock out and keep out of the room? Yeah, so, so we keep coming back to some of the, the you know, the legs of the stool, but mindset again is mm -hmm. um, the mindset of the problem solver is that, that you, you basically, you, you do trial and error, you fail fast. Uh, it's the Silicon Valley mantra. And uh, now Silicon Valley mantra, cheap. unfortunately, is move fast and break. Well, it's also move fast and break things. And we've broken a variety of things, including, oh, I don't know, some aspects of society that, that I think we need to need to fix. Mm -hmm. But the basic premise is you're talking about a mindset shift for an organization where people feel that they can be problem solvers, they can take risks and they can fail fast and they can iterate. And all of that can be done in a very problem-centric and project-centric way. Now, the, 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 these, these are not, for, for organizations that have much more of sort of an old rules of work and, old, and, and fixed mindset, these are very challenging transitions. I talk about a number of the techniques for doing that um, in the book, but the basic premise is that you have to help every individual 
to go back to some of the basics I was talking about, understanding their own skills, understanding the kind of problems they most want to solve, build the flexible environment inside the organization where people can, as teams, dynamically bind around problems, come together to solve a problem, do you know, finish that project, move on to the next one, manage multiple projects simultaneously. The organizations that have done this are ones that leverage flexible technology infrastructure that have become very digital. Uh, there, there are, I know of one organization, uh, it's got, I think, three, three 400 employees. Within 36 hours of realizing the impact of the virus, they were a completely virtual organization. That's just stunning. Mm. And yet there are other organizations that are still trying to figure it out and figure out how do we do this hybrid work thing and how do we, you know, and so, so this is, I think, the challenge and the opportunity for those who lead in organizations is to help people to develop this mindset of the problem solver to allow people to make mistakes, but to fail fast, that is iterate quickly. Um, and I talk about a number of technici- sorry, techniques in the book, uh, rapid design thinking, rapid prototyping, all these things that allow you to be able to help people from across the organization, very diverse teams, to come together to solve problems very flexibly and dynamically and then move on to the next one. It's all doable, but it takes a new mindset. Yeah. And it takes bravery to actually have a feedback loop that's also open. One where those learnings aren't just in that little silo of that team that, oh yeah, we failed, but we're not going to tell anybody, is to actually be open and rapid in the feedback loop as well is important. I want to circle us back to the beginning, something that for both of us really matters. The world we want to live in is one where no one's left behind. And you have a great ability to envision futures and to think about how you might go about creating them and get people thinking, whether that's self-reflection, having processes and things in place to do that. How might technology serve and help us in a world where no one's left behind? What are the sort of aspects that you foresee of a future world that you'd like to see come manifest? What kind of roles does technology and play specifically, not in just the concept of future of work and its all expansiveness, but in leaving no one behind? Where does that show up for, you know, in technology serving that problem and challenge for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so first off, the, I, I want to make sure, you know, with, with, with um, a lot of the, the things we, you and I have talked about in terms of the disruptive technologies and, you know, Singularity University is, I think, you know, and, and Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurzweil, the founders, have been, have been very fond about talking about these you know, massive disruptive uh, impacts and all the positive results that can come from them. I think we have a lot of information now that the technology by itself can, ha- can generate a ton of good, but it could also generate... Uh, a ton of bad as well. That is, if we don't design for a more inclusive world of work and learning, that you can you can get some very negative consequences. And uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning software is a good example. So there's a a lot of the pressure that you were talking about for especially for businesses is around things like meeting shareholder needs and quarterly reports and profitability and and performance and all that sort of stuff. And the challenge, unfortunately, in that world is that so much of the design of the use of those technologies is then around efficiency. And 
So, so we've got this old model that again goes back to the industrial era where technology is about replacing human tasks. Like every time we can find a human task that can be done better by a piece of software or a robot, just do it. And if we left some humans behind, oh, we had to lay them off, uh, yeah, big deal. You know, they, we, we go hire some new humans, right? Some, some smarter ones, because those old ones clearly weren't too smart. Um, so, so that is the negative side, the negative externality side of the ledger. That is, we bring these technologies in, we automate a whole bunch of human tasks, and you know, we don't help people to be able to continually adapt. What we can do is completely flip that entire equation and say that our technologies are about augmenting human capacity, helping us to understand our superpowers, develop new superpowers, collaborate with others on their superpowers, uh, enhance our superpowers. All of those capacities that we're developing with these technologies have the ability to help humans to be able to solve problems so much more effectively and better and to do it together as part of a team sport and a global team sport that if we just shift that calculus, if we invest in those technologies that help humans to be able to do better work, it's gonna work out a lot better. Um, it's the dystopian calculation. A lot of the robots and software taking jobs meme that unfortunately develops and that's how we leave humans behind. But the truth is robots and software don't take jobs. Robots and software just automate tasks. It's a human's decision if a job goes away and we can make different decisions. I came across in one of my interviews, the concept and phrase of task redundancy, not people redundancy. And to think of it in that way, in how do we provide that adaption roadmap for everyone to discover their new value and that technology should be in service of that expansion and pursuit, not as an afterthought and a, oh, yeah, Celavi. Well, someone else's problem, or they'll deal with it, or they're left on their own. To this uh, vision and view of ethical employee mobility, um, and to take responsibility of whether that is in your current arena of your organisation or in your community and society, in which you've allowed someone to have a future that's better than the past. And I think, you know, this is, you know, for many it's exhilarating, it's motivating, it's something they can feel an emotional connection to. But at each conversation I have, you know, it takes these little collaborations, these little moments of where collective individuals who have half the jigsaw pieces that are lining together in this new imagination of work where we're less about competition and more about collaboration. And again, that's gonna take an incredibly different shift of society, of work, and the difference between scarcity and abundance, right, in, in these things. As a, as a last piece, uh, Gary, um, I, I wonder if you would share, you, you've been at Singularity University for three, four years now, which is kind of the fringe edge of the mantra of abundant technology going to solve every challenge and problem. You've been, in your own world, dealing with people's careers and their career portfolios from your early days as workshop uh, support at 19 for the 40 year olds of what their next career paths would be to writing and speaking on the subject. If there were some things that I could do tomorrow that would help me ensure I wasn't left behind, 
or my brother or my colleague or people weren't left behind? What could I do tomorrow in the way that I'm thinking or a practical piece or reading your book or whatever it may be? What could I do within the next 24 hours, 48 hours that would start me on that um, right path to making sure myself and the people I love and care about aren't left behind? Absolutely. So, I, so I'd love it if people would read the book. That's marvelous. But um, uh, I don't, I don't claim to have all the answers. But I, I hopefully, I'm hoping that it can be catalytic for people. Uh, but a couple things. And again, I'm going to come back to the sort of the four anchors and of, of of individuals, organizations, communities, and countries. So, as individuals, what we found in fit for literally 50 years of uh, parachute uh, is um, that that. People need to learn a process. That is, uh, you could get somebody to walk you through what your next job could be, and but that's you know my, my, my father was a fan of the the old aphorism of you know give me a fish and I eat for the day, teach me to fish and I can eat for the rest of my life. So you need to learn how to fish, and teach others how to fish. So if you figure this out, if you go through that, what, where, and how, self inventory scenarios, and then finding or creating that work. Once you crack that code, help others to do it. And this is not rocket science. Um, yeah, th these are, these are completely learnable techniques. Yeah. Exactly. So that's one. The second is if you have any power, <laughs> if you hire, if you have people that work for you, if you work in an organization with other people, the more inclusive and aligned you can be, the more impact you will have. So the research is very, very clear. The most effective teams are those that are psychologically diverse and have psychological safety. That is a lot of different people that look different and think different and act different in the room. And they're all safe. They can make, come up with crazy ideas. They can do trial and error together. So if you hire, hire somebody from a non-standard profile. Don't hire somebody that looks pretty much like the same person looking back at you in the mirror, hire somebody with a very, very different background or, or uh, experiences or somebody with transferable skills, flex skills mm -hmm. that you might not have chosen before because they came from another industry or from a completely you know, school you never went to or hire, do, do those things that include people who might not have been included otherwise you can have an amazing impact. And then if you are someone who leads in a larger organization, a larger context, who leads in your community, you have the capacity to build more inclusive ecosystems. You can build processes that ensure that others will be more inclusive. You can put in place the way that people align the work that they do so that they're all trying to solve problems together, whether it's in your organization or in your community. And believe it or not, if you do all those things, what that will eventually help to roll up and influence is what happens in your broader region or your country. Um, these, these are all quite doable activities. Every one of us can do these things. They're not hypothetical. You can, you can start today. And to finish off before we say goodbye for now, um, you go back to one of the workshops when you were 19 that you were in and you can tell 19 year old Gary some of the things you've learned along the way of the years since 
with all of the knowledge, all of this thought that you've got, what piece of advice would you give about your own career to your 19-year-old self uh, of a, a snippet, a nugget, a thought, a question? What would you say? So, so I've actually got two answers. So I, I love this question because uh, my, my wife and I, we produced this um, program for Google Science Fair where we interviewed amazing change makers around the world. And uh, everybody from Peter Diamandis to yep. Craig Kurzweil to, to uh, Mark Keller, the astronaut. I mean, just unbelievable. Dean Kamen, the inventor. And we asked them that. What, would you, what advice would you give to your, your teenage self? And so, and I, and I, I can tell you what their answers were, but I'll just tell you mine is. And mine, mine is, I think, a little bit unique, which is that uh, I wouldn't advise that that teenager to do anything differently. And I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll tell you, I can give you advice for others who <laughs> you may have 19 year olds that they advise, that they talk to. But for myself, I, I just have a different calculus, which is I believe that every decision that we have made in our lives, good, bad, indifferent, uh, positive outcomes, negative outcomes, contributes to who we are. And I can't go back and tell that 19 year old me to do anything different because, you know, sure, I'd be a different person, but I, I am who I am. And so, so my calculus is I, I've got lots of things to tell people, you know, simple things, but tell 19 year olds nowadays. And hopefully that parents will do in giving their children permission to experiment and explore and that sort of thing and to do what they love. Those are typically the two things I'd suggest. But I believe that each one of us has to not just honor that past, but own that past and look at all that has contributed to the kinds of problems that we can solve today. You, you couldn't change that. So instead, what's the advice you would give yourself today? And I hope it's the same advice you'd give that 19-year-old. Give yourself permission to dream and do what you love. I love that. Thanks, Gary. It's been a real joy to learn and discover your insights and wisdom. And I'm sure our community are going to benefit from uh, what you've shared with them. So thank you very much. If they want to get in contact with you or your book or various pieces, where should they go? Uh, gbowles.com, G-B-O-L-L-E-S.com. I've got, you know, all my, my lectures and articles and, uh, and a link to the book on that. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been marvelous. Thanks. Do you have the level of adaptability to survive and thrive the rapid changes ahead? Has your resilience got more comeback than a yo-yo? Do you have the ability to unlearn in order to reskill, upskill and break through? Find out today and uncover your adaptability profile and score, your AQ. Visit aqai.io to gain your personalized report across 15 scientifically validated dimensions of adaptability. For a limited time, enter code PODCAST65 for a complimentary AQME assessment. AQAI, transforming the way people, teams and organizations navigate change. Thank you for listening to this episode of Decoding AQ. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast directory and we'd love to hear your feedback. Please do leave a review and be sure to tune in next time for more insights from our amazing guests.